just uh, thank you for clearing aside this space and this time where we can come together and, and sing your praises and, and uh, study your word together, fellowship, get to know one another. Thank you for uh, the congregation that you continue to build here and the, the wonderful and, and precious people that you assemble um, by the moving of your spirit in this place, that we would be in community together to support one another and to encourage one another and to be on the mission together that you have us on, which is a glorious and a beautiful one, to be proclaimers of the good news of the gospel of grace, um, to be ones who point to the person of Jesus. And we get to to absorb that good news first, and then we get to, to live it together and then have it sort of spill over into the world around us. And so we lift up our celebrations around Easter, one of the most wonderful times for us to have that, that grace spill over into the lives of others. Ask that you would be empowering that work. Uh, already you would be moving in our community around us to be drawing people to yourself and, and awakening their spirits to your, the movement of your spirit. Um, that you would uh, guide us, have us, give us eyes to see the opportunities before us. Lord, um, it's a privilege and an honor that we get to serve you and to be a part of what you're doing in this world, your grand redemptive plan, which has been in the works for ages and ages and continues to unfold in our lives in this place. And we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Lord, let that reshape how we look at all of life, how we look at our families and our work and our hobbies and our future and all of that, Lord. Continue to reshape that around the gospel, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Okay. So uh, the title for the sermon today is Inconvenient Jesus. And so I've been thinking about inconvenience a little bit. Uh, I was looking online and found some interesting things. One of the things I found was uh, a list of cards that had been turned into uh, the workers at Bridger Wilderness Area in Wyoming. So the Rangers, you know, they put out, you know, if you have, imp- if you, if you have, uh, Ways to improve the wilderness area, the park, you know, let us know and fill out this comment card. And so here's some, what people said on their comment cards um, uh, in the last while. The trails in Bridger Wilderness Area, which is in Wyoming, by the way, uh, the trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. Another one said, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. No joke. <laughs> Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. (laughs) Please pave the trails so they can be snow plowed during the winter. Chair lifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. This is a good one. The coyotes made too much noise last night (laughs) and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. (laughs) Uh, This one's even better. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. (laughs) Is there a way I can get reimbursed? (laughs) And then it says, please call the number. I should give you the number. We'll all call. Um, Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Because, you know, hiking speeds are fast, and you don't want to accidentally careen into one of those trees. (laughs) 
Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Um, The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. (laughs) Too many rocks in the mountains. All right. Wow, that wasn't nearly as funny as when I read it on my computer screen. This one reading out loud. Um, Inconvenience, right? We want convenience. Um, We laugh at these people. How could they be so crazy? But who of us has not sat there on the couch and said, the remote is just so far away. I have to get up and get it. Or texted your spouse when he or she is in the next room because you're too lazy to get up, right? Convenience, the longing for convenience makes us kind of crazy sometimes. And uh, Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus is inconvenient. Jesus is inconvenient. And that's what we see this morning in our text, that the priests find him to be very inconvenient for their plans and goals, and we often find that to be the case too. And I wonder, though, sometimes if maybe it isn't good that Jesus is inconvenient. Maybe some of the things in our lives that are difficult, that are inconvenient, are good. They did a study. I don't know where I find these things. They did this study on, they put a bunch of amoebas, I guess, in an environment, and they tailored the environment to exactly what they suspected the amoebas would need, the right temperature, all the right things, and what happened to the amoebas over time. They died. There's something about needing a challenge. There's something about needing to be inconvenienced, to be stretched or stressed that causes and helps growth in us and in the world. And that's kind of what's happening. And and, and the key question here in this text is how are you going to respond to that? When Jesus comes on the scene and brings the inconvenience that he brings, how will we respond? So if you'd open with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 63. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Just raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll pass one to you. And as we always say, you could take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have that available at your fingertips when you need it. Luke 22, verse 63. Now, a little bit of background here as we get into this. In fact, I'm going to put up a map for you because uh, the story of Jesus and his crucifixion sort of takes place on this field right here. This is a map of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. And over here... um, You've got the temple. What an, uh, an imposing edifice this is. It's just amazing for that time. And then we, we, we saw Jesus. In fact, let's go to the next slide because I tried to zoom in a little bit. Um, here's the temple, and, and this is the temple compound area. This is the temple itself right here. And then when, last, when Jesus was praying in the garden, uh, this was just right over here. Remember I said he was looking up at this incredible wall, you know, humbly sort of underneath all of this. And then... Um, you know, he's arrested there in the garden, and now he's going to be taken to uh, probably this house right here. We're not sure exactly which one, but probably this house. Um, and yes, we're totally nerding out on this, and that's okay. Um, this is where the high priest was. And so you have, you have to understand there's a couple of levels of authority here. There is the, the Jewish leadership, but they're under the Roman leadership. And so you have this sort of bouncing back and forth. The Jewish leadership is wanting to have Jesus, uh, you know, uh, found guilty, and so they bring him to the Roman leadership. So they take him from the garden, and they come around through here, and they take him probably to this house, which is the high priest. And, and then afterwards, we're going to, this will be next week, 
they take Jesus over to Pilate, who's living here in this palace. Okay? And then, you, you, some of you know the story. You know how there's this bouncing back between Pilate and Herod and, and what's, what's going on there? And so Herod, whose region of authority is up north in Galilee, he, because it's the Passover time, he's in Jerusalem to be there with the crowds. And so he's staying in this, in this palace right here, which is a smaller one. That's not where he normally is, but he's staying there. And so it's interesting that they're both in town at the same time. So Jesus will be bounced from Pilate over to Herod, and then he'll be bounced back to Pilate, and then he'll be convicted and taken out, and, and they probably think right around here is, is Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. So it's this pathway like this, um, and then over to Pilate, and then back to Herod, and then to Pilate, and then out to be crucified. Now, some of you don't care about that. I find that incredibly fascinating. It helps me to place what's going on in the events um, as they are. So um, if that's helpful to you, great. But what we understand that's going on is there's this betrayal that's been happening and this denial. And then Jesus is in the custody. He's in the custody in the text that we're going to read this morning of the temple guards. So the priests have their own military force or police force. The priests have their own police force. And so Jesus is in that company. Now he will be handed over to the Roman authorities next, but today he's with those, uh, those, those uh, temple guards. Um, now, 63, verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus, that's these temple guards in custody, and they were in that smaller house, were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And I, this is, the irony here is just dripping, because earlier in chapter 18, we, had, we read this, uh, Jesus said about himself, for he, me, the son of man, he says, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus predicted that he would be mocked and spat upon. Okay? And, and, and the irony of them saying, you know, hitting him and say, prophesy, um, prophesy that who hit you. And, and, and there in the background is this notion that Jesus has, has already prophesied that this very thing would happen to him. Verse 65, and they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, so this is Friday morning, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. In other words, he kind of goes on the offensive here. He says, look, you, you haven't taken a position on this. You're just trying to catch me out. And so if, if I were to ask you, you're, you're, just, you're just waiting to catch me. He's, he's sort of saying, look, I'm not going to engage in banter with a group of people who obviously have already decided what they believe about me. Okay? Verse 69. But from now on, he says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, these council members, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Again, he's not going to engage in their game. Verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, one of the questions is, what exactly is it that they heard from his own lips that enabled them to find him guilty and charge him. Now, 
they probably would have continued trying to find a way because they were already, uh, just reading the last chapters, they already had their mind made up that they were going to find him guilty somehow. But what was it in this particular instance that they found as the reason for convicting Jesus? Now, it's all wrapped up in these titles that are being passed back and forth. I don't know if you were paying attention to that dialogue and you could hear the the different titles. So the titles are, uh, Are You the Christ? See, you didn't know they were texting each other, actually, right? Um, Are You the Christ? Um, Keep the emotions down that way, right? (laughs) Uh, And he says, No, I'm the Son of Man, who will be at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Are you then you saying you're the Son of God? You say I am. And then they find him guilty. And so there are these titles that are, and, and we don't really have, right, as modern Americans, these aren't titles that are readily obvious to us. We're not, we're not steeped in the day, and, and we're certainly not, you know, members of the council sitting. Uh, you can imagine the theological debates they would have had around all of these things. And so it's a little bit more challenging for us probably to enter into this. But, but this title Christ that they first throw is this title the Messiah, and that it really refers to the one who was going to come in the, in, the, in, in the way of David to be the king, the Messiah over Israel. So are you the Messiah? Now that in and of itself would not, they probably would not have been, you know, the, enough to, to cause him to be convicted. And, and, and so he responds and he says, well, and I, I just love the genius and brilliance of, of Jesus in this. I'm the son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man. Now son of man is a, is a, a wonderful title for him because it's on the one side a way of just sort of saying uh, me, uh, just a sort of a, a, a roundabout way of saying, referring to me. It, it just, I'm a human, just me, the son of man. On the other hand, it hearkens to Daniel 7 where the, the Messiah would come on the cloud uh, and, and with great force and power. So it has this, this sort of divine aspect to it. And so Jesus, when he says son of man, um, you don't really know which one he's saying. In fact, the truth of the matter is that Jesus is both, right? He's both. He's, a, he's human and he's divine. And so it's all kind of wrapped up in that. But he does add to it that uh, I will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that's the part where they start, they latch onto and they get tripped up uh, about that idea of him sitting at the right hand of the Father. So, Father, so they say, are you then the Son of God? And, and, and that just doesn't mean in a generic sort of sense, a Son of God. They mean in particular the Son of God. It's a unique title that would have carried most force. It would have been the sort of the strongest title for the Messiah um, and also uh, to, to, to begin to sort of touch edges with the divinity of, of Christ because he is the unique and special Son of God. And so when they say that with the background of him sitting at the right hand of the Father, then they all say, okay, this is, this is blasphemous and we have this guy, he's guilty, let's go ahead and convict him. Now, granted, they are looking for anything. But what is it that they see in this title? Why is this uh, an affront to them? And, and the answer is that this is an affront to the holiness of God, to think of, of this Jesus, who is a human being, saying that he is going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And in Judaism in that day, that would have been a place reserved for angels. Somebody pure and perfect. And they're looking at Jesus, who undoubtedly at that time was, was smelly, right? Very human, sweaty, dirty feet, you know, beaten by this point. 
how is this one going to sit at the right hand of the Father? And so it's an affront to them. It's an affront to their sense of the holiness of God and and, 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 and to the, their understanding of this massive chasm between God, the exalted God, and human beings are, who are so far fallen from God. And if you think about the, that picture of the temple, and, and there's Jerusalem. Jerusalem's at the center of Israel. It's on the mountain. And all of Israel's oriented around Jerusalem. And all of Jerusalem's oriented around the temple. And all the temple grounds are oriented around the, the, the inner part of the temple. And then you've got uh, different patios sort of within that. And then you go to the very center of the temple. And in that place, only the high priest would enter once a year. And there had to be all kinds of, um, of, 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 of thought around how he would do that and, and, and tradition and process for him to enter once a year to be in the Holy of the Holies where God was present. And so... You, if, you, if you have that in your head, you get a sense of just how highly and how holy they thought of God. All these different levels to even draw near to God. And here's Jesus saying, I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so they're offended, this dirty, beaten, humble man. And he's saying to them, essentially, I am going to march right in to the presence of of God to the Holy of Holies. And not only that, when I do, the Father will pull up a chair for me right next to him on his right hand. Now, right hand being the place of power and the place of second highest authority. And so you've, you've got this picture in your mind of this Jesus who's just broken and humble and dirty and messy. And, and here he is saying, I'm going to walk into the Holy of Holies and the Father is going to pull out a seat for me right next to him and I will sit down. totally blew their categories. They don't understand how to deal with this. And for us, it kind of goes to another level because Jesus says, essentially, going forward, he says, and guess what? I'm going to bring all my friends with me. And they're going to enter in. And guess what? God's going to pull out a seat for each one of them. And they're going to sit down and have a place in the presence of of the Father. There's a powerful study in contrast reading this book called AD 33 and it's about all the events going on at that, this very time when Jesus is going through this ordeal. Everything is happening in that year and tells the story of Sejanus. Some of you are familiar with history. You probably have heard the story of Sejanus. He's the emperor's council. He's continually entrusted with more and more the emperor, the Roman holy, the, excuse me, the Roman emperor at that time. Uh, is Tiberius, and uh, Tiberius is just over this massive, I mean, it's just a huge empire. And, and, and Sejanus is his right-hand man, essentially. He's his prime counselor, and he's continually being handed more and more authority. Sejanus is. And Tiberius, in fact, wants to, to even back out of, you know, the, the difficult parts in the day-to-day. He kind of goes off on an island and lives there, and he, he leaves more and more in control of this Sejanus. Now, Sejanus is sidling up to Tiberius and seeming to be very faithful, but back underneath it all, he's conniving to get rid of all who would be potential heirs to the throne, to the empire. 
In fact, he seduces Tiberius' son's wife and then enlists her help to poison Tiberius' son so that he can be the one next in line to become ruler of the empire. This goes on, and Tiberius at some point figures out that things are awry, and he makes a plan to get rid of Sejanus. And it all happens as it always seems to have done in those days in the Senate, right? And Sejanus is sitting there, and they, they start reading a letter. And at first it starts off, it almost seems like Sejanus is going to be given authority, chief authority, and all of a sudden as the letter goes on, they realize that the exact opposite is happening. And Sejanus is being convicted of being a traitor and of killing the emperor's son and on and on and on. And as this is happening, the historians say that all the senators who were around Sejanus just start moving away, right? They just start moving away. Because this man is a traitor, a liar, a cheat, and he's trying to get away with the throne. And then, of course, as always happens in that day, there is a bloodbath, right? So anybody connected to Sejanus was killed. So all the people that he'd been bringing along with him as he was stepping into this place of authority, anybody who had an association with him killed. His little children you know, elementary age children killed. Uh, any, anybody who worked with him, uh, any extended family members killed. In fact, they think even that Pilate, because of association with Sejanus, partly his actions towards Jesus are described, uh, are, are, are understood in the light of the fact that he was, af- he was afraid for his life on some level, and that if there was too much craziness going on in Jerusalem, then, it, then he was already sort of, he was already on pins and needles. And so, um, the, anybody associated with Sejanus was, was killed. And this went on, this bloodbath went on. And you read that. This is happening right at the very moment that Jesus is going to the cross. And, then we rise, and you read that and, and, and you just see this incredible difference. In the heavenly realms, there is a right-hand man who is being entrusted with authority. And he is operating with integrity, Jesus and he is carrying out uh, righteousness, and he will bring with him a host of people, uh, and they will be brought into the court with the Heavenly Father. All of that's happening at the same time that this bloodbath is happening from this, this man, and it's an incredible relief, uh, I mean, contrast uh, between these two. The way it works in the world, and the ones who seem to have the power, and then what's actually going on, behind the scenes with Jesus. And what does this mean? This means for us, and and, and I have two lessons for us this morning. This is the first one. Jesus' seat means there is a seat for you. Jesus' seat at the right hand of the Father means that there's a seat for you. Jesus says these words. He says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And he says this remarkable thing. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. If you're a follower of Sejanus, man, you've got no confidence at all. You're done. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
you have all the confidence that you could ever wish for in the world. To enter into the place of the emperor, not just the emperor of the Roman Empire, but of the universe. To march right in. And what's even more amazing is that sitting there in that room is a seat with your name on it because of Jesus Christ. And what's even more amazing is that that that's who you are more than anything else in this world. That describes the essence of your being more than anything else that you might think does. The fact that you have a place at the table with the emperor of the universe, a son, daughter of the king, You've been ushered in by the work of Jesus Christ. You have no fear. You walk in confidently. That's who you and I are. That's who we are. You ever had one of those chances to get a ticket to a really good show or a sporting event? It's like months away, but you're already carrying the ticket around with you. Because you're so excited about what's coming. And every time you see somebody, you pull out your ticket. Guess what I got? Show them the ticket. And you're working at work, and it's drudgery. And and all of a sudden, you remember the ticket in your pocket, right? Only three more months, and I get to go see so-and-so or go to this game, right? I mean, just having that ticket changes your life. It changes the way you face the day-to-day. And it changes the way you walk through the world. Well, brothers and sisters, fellow sons and daughters of the King, we have a ticket, okay? We have a ticket in our pockets. And there has never been a ticket anything like the ticket that we have in our pockets. And the mere presence of that ticket in our pockets ought to change everything about how we live in this world. It's a marker of our identity. And it's more true of us than anything else. It's the lasting piece of who we are into eternity. Sons and daughters of the King. Because Jesus has a seat at the right hand of the Father. We have a seat in the presence of God. All right. Now there's there's another thing going on here. And that's with the, the priests and their handling of Jesus. And this one's not going to be so pleasant, right? You can imagine. And in this point, let me just put it out there for you straight, straightforwardly. The more attached we are to idols, the more inconvenient Jesus will seem. The more attached we are to idols, the more inconvenient Jesus will seem to us. And some of us may be in that place where we're exploring Christianity and, and, and Jesus seems very inconvenient, and our temptation in that moment is to say, well, I don't want Jesus. But what's really going on, and we need to be aware of this, what's really going on is, I don't want Jesus because I'm in love with this idol over here, and, and coming to Jesus is going to force me to have to let go of this idol, and I'm afraid, and I don't want to. Right? And so then, like the priests, we're blind to the, to the wonder of Jesus, we're blind to the wonder of Jesus because we're attached to an, an idol. And that's not only true if, as we're seeking Jesus, but then as we're walking with Jesus in a, day to day, that same dynamic is present. 
these priests, they, they're, living, they're living high, I can't really say high on the hog um, with priests, but um, if you're in the south, we'll say <laughs> they're living in the tall cottons. Um, if you were in the south, these guys, they have it all. They've, they've got, they've got uh, place and position and status. I point out the house that the high priest would have been living in, um, the, 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 the second largest house or third largest house in, the, in all of Jerusalem. Um, they've got all of these tra- trappings, right, of, of, of this life. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and crowds start to follow him, and they're listening to his teaching, and undoubtedly going back to the priest, and they're saying, what do you think about this? And Jesus is healing people, and transformations are happening, and he's in the temple, and he's overturning all the, 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 the carts that people were selling, and, and on and on, and it's causing this stir. And these priests are feeling that their life, their livelihood is being threatened, right? They're feeling that their livelihood is being threatened. And so they make a decision at some point, and we kind of watch them in the last chapters, we watch them make this decision that they're going to crush Jesus and get him out of the way. Jesus will be crushed. And, and Jesus knows that this has taken place, which is why he does not engage in this banter with them. He doesn't go back and forth and say, well, this is who I am, and give them all the theology of this is who I am, because they've already decided what they believe about him. And so he doesn't even go there with them. He, he puts them off slightly uh, and, and, and moves it, this conversation away. And, and, and it's like this for us as well. When Jesus marches into our lives, all of our idols get dashed. So the way we look at money becomes totally transformed. And if that's an idol for us, then... We have to grapple with that. The way we handle sexuality, which for some of us is an idol, gets transformed. It's very inconvenient, right? Because what we think we knew and understood about it gets turned on its head. It's, in fact, it becomes much more beautiful and wonderful, sexuality does. But it gets turned on its head from what we thought it was. And when Jesus comes in, that's inconvenient. We don't want to have that happen and so sometimes we crush Jesus like the, like the priests. We crush his influence in our lives because we don't want to have to face the idols that we love. Power gets transformed when Jesus comes in. It's very inconvenient. If you are someone who has authority and you enjoy that, no longer Jesus is going to call you to not enjoy that, but to use that authority for the advance of his kingdom and for the, for the blessing of people. He's going to change that completely. The concept of truth becomes changed when Jesus walks in the door. Um, We may have truth here on the totem pole of values, and we often elevate expedience. In other words, I want to achieve a certain means end, and so I'm going to use whatever means. doesn't matter if it's true or not to get there. Jesus comes on the scene. Now we have a new relationship to truth. Now truth is much higher, and we can't just do what's convenient and expedient we have to now consider doing what's truthful in our lives, and that oftentimes is more difficult and inconvenient. And we don't want to. When Jesus comes, it's inconvenient, just like with the priests. When we look at the people around us, it's, 
It's nice to absorb the values of our world and to have certain people on a pedestal and think these are the good people and these are the less good people and I'm going to gravitate towards the good people, however I define that. Stay away from these other people. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, everybody's made in the image of God. And then he himself, he goes to the poor and he goes to the needy and the le- he touches lepers. Okay? So then that idol gets, tra- that, that gets dashed when Jesus comes on the scene. He transforms the way that we look at people. And the one that you want to look down on as being less valuable, suddenly you're reminded of Jesus, that he sees them with equal value as all the other people. It turns our world upside down, and it's very, very inconvenient. In America, we love comfort. And we have constructed a society that in many respects is built around achieving the greatest level of comfort that we can achieve. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he says... I'm going to mess with your comfort. And I'm going to call you into a life that will be uncomfortable oftentimes. And it's inconvenient. But when Jesus comes in, that's what he does. He he dashes the idol of comfort. And he goes on and on. And he dashes all kinds of idols. The idol of control. uh, That's very much attached to the idol of comfort. Another favorite American idol. Favorite idol of anybody who has lots of money and resources and opportunities. And Jesus comes in. He says, you know what? Um, You like to be in control of your life, and you have been fairly successful at doing so, and now I would like to take over control. Give me the reins. And I have a different plan for you. And it's very inconvenient. When Jesus walks in, it's inconvenient. It was inconvenient for the priests, and it will be, and it continues to be inconvenient for us. But like that amoeba, that I talked about in the beginning, there's something beautiful and wonderful about the inconvenience of Jesus Christ. Because in the midst of the challenge and the struggle and the new mission and getting outside of our comfort zone and letting go of control and releasing our resources, understanding them as being part of God's resources and letting God transform our sexuality and everything, when 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 we give that to God, we enter into a life that has all the hallmarks of the life that God originally intended for us. And it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's wonderful. And that's where the inconvenience of Jesus Christ leads. So what do we do with this? I kind of struggle with this because I see in myself how strong this impulse is to follow in the footsteps of the priests, and crush the influence of Jesus in my life. I know, I know how strong that influence is. And so is there any hope for us, for those of us who are like the priests and continually crush the influence of Jesus in our life, what hope do we have? And I'm searching through the scriptures and I come to a priest and his name is Nicodemus. And he gives me hope. Nicodemus is probably in that council. Uh, Jesus, he, Nicodemus came to Jesus early in the Gospel of John, and, and he said, there's something about you, teacher, and, and he asked him questions, and, and Jesus ministered to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus humbled himself before Jesus. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is being taken down off of the cross, there's Joseph of Arimathea, who's a wealthy man who has a tomb to put Jesus in, And there's one other man who's there holding the body of Jesus, taking him off the cross. Who was it? 
Nicodemus. Hours earlier, Nicodemus had heard all the people probably that he respected on that council going after Jesus. And Nicodemus is taking a different path. He's pursuing Jesus. He's open to the movement of Jesus. And what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? And I think this is the key for us. Those of us who don't want to be like the priests and crushing the movement of Jesus in our lives, the, the work of Jesus in our lives, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus that helped him along this path? And the answer is he said to Nicodemus, pay attention to the wind, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves in ways that we don't understand. Inconvenient ways. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus. And I want to say to Solano Community Church, pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Okay? You want to crush the idols. You want to release control and the desire for comfort and have your sexuality transformed and, and, and live in relationship to your resources in a way that honors God. You want all of that. Pay attention to the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. And let Jesus work through the Spirit to move you into places that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. So let me ask you, what what attachments are choking out the influence of Jesus in your life this morning? What attachments are choking out the influence of Jesus in your life this morning? To use the language of our discipleship pathway... uh, the third one in that is getting healthy. And the subtext, subline for that is face issues that choke out growth. That's part of what we want to do as a community together. We want to face issues that choke out growth in Christ-likeness. And we have the opportunity to help each other along that path. And so I'm asking us this morning, what idols in your life are choking out growth? And I've listed a number already. Is it resources, money? Is it sexuality? Is it power? Is it... Relationship to truth? Is it people? Is it comfort? Is it control? And you could probably add many more to that list. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we're sitting here, you would even bring to our minds the idols that we need most need to face this morning. The idols that keep us from allowing you to have the kind of sway in our lives that you intend to have. So Holy Spirit, come upon us in the power of Christ to help us. Help us to see first and foremost. And then after we see, help us to step out in faith. To embrace the inconvenient pathway upon which you intend to set our feet for our own good, for the good of the people around us, and for your glory. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that we have this community to help us. To help us identify our idols and then to walk with us along the sometimes painful journey of of 
ripping their influence over us, off of us. I just think of that, that painful ripping sound that often comes when we tear away from an idol that we have been nursing and massaging and loving and pursuing for years and decades even in our lives. And when Jesus comes, He wants to rip that away from us. Rip to release our grip. To take those same hands that were hugging that idol and to wrap them around Christ. Say, you are the object of my worship. You are all I need. You are my everything. You are my Lord. So I don't need any idols. And you are my Savior. So I can march right into that throne room of the maker of the universe and find my seat. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this table in front of us that reminds us of those truths. As we walk up this morning to take the bread, which is symbolic of your body, and the cup, which is symbolic of your blood, in a sense, we're reminded of our freedom and the confidence that we're given to march into that throne room. Help us to walk forward in boldness today to this table. We're also reminded that we don't have to keep those attachments anymore, that we can, we can release them as we take you up in our arms. Be sent out of this place into a new week, a fresh week of living in your presence and serving and loving and becoming more and more who you intended us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you forward to this table. Uh, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given